So we're gonna, we've got two weeks left, today and then one more Sunday next week. We're going to be studying the life of Joseph. Uh, we're getting towards the tail end of his story. And before we dive in, let me just give you kind of like a, uh, a preface before we jump into today. So if you've been with us the last several weeks studying the life of Joseph, we recognize that he has had a lot of ups and a lot more downs in his life. And throughout our study of Joseph, we've really been able to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. And we've learned how to have a, a greater faith because of, what the, because of the situations we, we walk through. We've learned how to trust God even more in those difficult situations. We've learned how we can use, how God can use those difficult moments to refine our faith. We've learned all kinds of different things by putting ourselves in Joseph's shoes. Today is completely different. Today is not a walk out of here with a list of, I can have a stronger faith by doing these things. You're not going to have a list today whatsoever. <clears throat> it is not a, here's what Joseph did, so let's do it like that. It's not, here's the faith that Joseph had, so let's try to have a faith like that. Not at all. If the last several weeks have been, here's what we can do, today is going to be a, here's what I want you to look for. Very different. What we're going to see throughout Joseph's story today is just a beautiful picture of grace. And I would hope <clears throat> that oftentimes, we walk in here on a Sunday expecting to get our list on what to do for this next week. And that, man, that should be helpful and applicable and practical and all the things. But sometimes we just need to sit and rest in the grace of God. And so my prayer for you today is that you would see a beautiful picture of grace through Joseph's story, but you'll see God's grace in your story as well. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the story of Joseph, for the life of Joseph for the beautiful picture of grace that we are gonna see in his life and his story today. God, I pray that you will focus our hearts, you will focus our minds, that you will focus our thoughts on you, and that we can sit and rest in your grace. Speak to us, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been around me long enough, uh, last year or so, you know that our family, uh, I was talked into this. This was not my choice whatsoever. You've heard my opinions on that before. I won't go into it, but we bought a dog like a year and a half ago. And uh, I just feel the need to give you updates periodically about this dog situation in our house. It's not terrible. It's not great, but it's not terrible. And it's just like, it's good. It's fine. It's okay. Like it's those words, right? So again, not my, not my, not what I wanted to have happen, but all the kids rallied against me and then they stole Becky and then, of course, I have to do what she says. So we have a dog and, and he's a good dog for the most part, right? Um, but one time it was raining outside and when it rains outside, the dog still has to go outside. And so I let the dog outside and I learned something about my dog on that rainy day. I learned that not only does our dog love the rain, he also loves the mud. And I didn't know this until recognizing he not just loves the mud outside, he loved to bring the mud inside our house. And when he brought the mud inside of our house, oh my goodness, it was everywhere. And I didn't recognize it until I see our white comforter on our bed covered with mud. And so then it's like, Cooper. And then I go down the stairs and I see mud downstairs. I see mud everywhere. So I, I get Cooper, throw him in the bathtub, and I take that picture so I could use it later one day. <clears throat> 
And I look at that picture and some of you look at this picture of that muddy, horrible dog and you, and you look at that picture and you say, that's strike one. Some of you would give your dog strike one. Some of you look at this and no, 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 that's strike one, two, and three, get out of my house. Some of you look at that picture and you see guilt. Can you see his guilt? Absolutely, I'm telling you. Like anybody that says, well, he didn't know any better. Liar! The second he made eye contact with me, he knew he was wrong. Some of you look at that and it's not just guilt. You take it a personal level further, you see shame. You can see shame in that dog's eyes. Here's what I see, truly. It took me a little bit to get to this place, but I can say this now. I see grace in this picture. And here's why. Because not only did I put him in the bathtub, but then me, our family continued to scrub this dog for hours practically, cleaned up the house, washed all the covers, cleaned off the furniture, got it all put back to the way it should have been, and we're actually still buds. I'll say friends, I'll say friends. We went from acquaintances to enemies to friends. And church, that is a beautiful picture of grace where you step into the mess with somebody else, right? And that's what God has done for each and every one of us, right? He sees us in our mess, at our worst. And he doesn't say, strike three, you're out. He says, let me get in it with you. And he gets into the mess with us and he cleans us up and he cleans us off and he restores not just us, but he restores our relationship with us where we are now friends with him Again, to set the tone for this morning, let me read Romans chapter five, starting in verse eight. It's a beautiful picture of grace. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Look, while we were still sinners. So while we're in the midst of the mess, while we're muddy, while we're dirty, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God, look, was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now, so what do we do because of grace? So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made, uh, made us friends with God. That local church is a beautiful picture of grace. Joseph's story today is just that. It is a beautiful picture of grace. And as I said earlier, it's not a list of here's the 10 things to do to grow in your faith today. I want you to sit in this beautiful picture of grace between Joseph and his brothers. And if you really wanna get a lot out of today, try your best to put yourself in the brother's shoes instead of Joseph's shoes today. Because that's when you really start to tie in to the beautiful picture that we will see as grace. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis 45 today. Genesis 45, need to give you a little context uh, so you know where we're at in Joseph's story. If you've been with us, uh, this will be a little recap. If not, let me catch you up. So we started this in Joseph's life when he was 17 years old in chapter 37. Joseph was the youngest of all of his brothers, but he was the favorite of his father. So his father was, had his favorite, gave him the coat of many colors. His brothers hated him for this. Couldn't say anything kind to him. They hated him all the more. They planned to kill him, 
but didn't want to deal with that big of a mess, so they decided to sell him into slavery. He was sold into slavery, then sold again, eventually bought by a name named Potiphar, an official in Pharaoh's army in Egypt. God was with Joseph, and in fact, recognized, uh, Potiphar recognized that God was with him, and so Potiphar promoted him. So Joseph was the second in command under Potiphar's household. But as we know anything about Joseph's story, what goes up will eventually come down. Potiphar's wife told a bunch of lies about him, which made Potiphar very angry. It wasn't fair, but Potiphar threw Joseph into prison. While in prison, God was still with Joseph, found favor with the warden of the jail, and eventually was elevated and promoted as a prisoner. He was the second in command out of the entire prison. A a baker and a cupbearer, two people that were, uh, didn't make Pharaoh very happy, were thrown into prison. They both had dreams. From those dreams, through the power of God, Joseph was able to interpret those dreams. For the cupbearer, it was really good news. The baker, not so much. The cupbearer was eventually reinstated into Pharaoh's good graces and was back serving with Pharaoh, but Joseph had one favor to ask of the cupbearer. Hey, when you get back to be with Pharaoh, would you tell him about my story? I'm here against my will. I've done nothing wrong. This is highly unfair. Maybe Pharaoh can help me. But once again, we know Joseph's story. It didn't go the way that Joseph would have liked. So Joseph was forgotten about for many years while in prison. One day, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. No one could figure out what those dreams meant until this cupbearer remembered. Hey, wait a second. There's a guy in jail that through the power of God can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh calls Joseph out of prison And Joseph, through the power of God, is able to interpret both of Pharaoh's dreams. Both dreams mean the exact same thing. This is important for today. Here's what the dreams meant. The first seven years would be seven years of prosperity across the land. The next seven years would be a great famine across the land. So Joseph advised Pharaoh, during those first seven years, be ready. Be prepared. Start filling the storehouses, start saving food during those seven years because the next seven years, everyone's gonna run out of food and will starve. Pharaoh thought his ideas were so great, he elevated Joseph to the second in command over all of Egypt and was the governor of Egypt. Now, we're gonna fast forward and that's where we're gonna pick up in chapter 45, but we have already, by the time we get to chapter 45, we will have already gone through the seven years of prosperity and Joseph did exactly as he suggested. They gathered food, they stored food, they got everything ready because they knew those seven years of famine was coming. Now they're two years into the famine. You with me on the time frame here? Not if you're with me. I don't wanna have to recap that whole thing again. I'm glad you, if not, ask your neighbor, where are we at? What's he talking about? And they'll tell you. So we are two years into the famine and people in Egypt and the surrounding areas are starting to starve. So people are showing up to Egypt and they're showing up to Joseph saying, we need food. We didn't know there was going to be a famine. And Joseph had gotten everything ready where he's able to help these families. He's able to help people, and he's able to help many communities because he's been prepared. Now, who do you think are one of those families that have showed up to Egypt to come in front of Joseph? His old family, his brothers. They had been starving in, where they were at, in the land that they were at, so their father Jacob sent the brothers to go to Egypt to talk with this new governor to see if they could get some food for their family so they didn't starve. When they show up, Joseph recognizes every single one of them. But they have not recognized Joseph. Keep in mind, it has been 22 years since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. People change over 22 years. People look different, especially Joseph. He looks more like an Egyptian than he did a Hebrew. So his brothers have no idea that it's Joseph, but they're about to find out. 
There's your summary. That's what brings us to date here in chapter 45. Pay attention to, like we've been saying, the beautiful picture of grace that's going to unfold. Chapter 45, starting in verse 1, look at it with me. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you pick one up in the lobby on your way out. Our gift to you to make sure that you've got God's word in your hands. Verse 1, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I want to stop there for a moment and just mention one thing, one observation here. We use grace, that word, I mean, that gets used in pretty common language, and it doesn't always have a deep emotion attached to it, sometimes, but not all the time. It's like, hey, can I just have some grace? Hey, give me some grace on this one. Hey, just like, hand out grace. We just kind of use grace kind of flippantly. What I want to point out is Joseph was hurting. This was not easy for Joseph. He got everybody out of the room. He told him who he was, and he broke down and wept. This was not easy for Joseph. This is not one of those things where, hey, it's been 22 years, no big deal, man. Like, doesn't time heal all wounds? No. This is still fresh for Joseph. This is still painful. This is still, this is still hurting him. This is difficult for him. Grace is difficult. It is not easy. It is very difficult. What's the easy thing? The easy thing is to ignore it. The easy thing would have been to send his brothers out and never think of them again. It would have been easier to hold on to anger. It would have been easier to hold on to bitterness. It would have been easier to hold on to rage. It would have been easier to hold on to resentment. Those are easy. But for Joseph to reveal his identity is difficult. Grace is difficult. Look what happens next. Verse three. He says, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. You think? They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came close. I feel like we need to add a word nervously. So they came nervously close. They, they nervously came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, <clears throat> whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. I love that he doesn't mince words there. He says, I'm Joseph. Remember that younger brother from 22 years ago? Yes, I've been counting the dates. That you sold me into slavery? That's me. Now what's going to happen? I mean, the, the fact that the brothers are speechless, nervous, stunned, whatever word you want to put in there would probably be accurate because they are standing in front of their brother who they sold into slavery. And now his, their lives are in now his hands. What is Joseph going to do? That had to have been going through the brothers' minds. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? We're in trouble. This isn't going to end well for us. And there's no excuse. There's no explanation what are they going to do? Verse five, and here begins the beautiful picture of grace. Verse five, Joseph says, but don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor 
of all Egypt. That, church, is a beautiful picture of grace. Now, again, this is not a be like Joseph. This is a sit in this presence, sit in this moment of grace. And if you can, put yourself in the brother's shoes. Let me point out just a few points and a few pictures of what grace really looks like. The first one is grace is not blind to guilt. Oftentimes we think grace is just sweeping something under the rug. It's not whatsoever. Grace is not blind to guilt because twice Joseph called out the sins. He called out the offense. He said, yes, I'm Joseph. Remember the one you sold into slavery. And then he says it again. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves. For what? For the offense, for the sin of selling me to this place. See, grace has to recognize the guilt. In order for there to be grace, there has to be a recognized offense. And what scripture tells us is the more that the sin increases, the more we recognize our sin, do you know this part? That grace increased all the more. So yes, grace recognizes what has been done. It recognizes the hurt, the pain, the sin, the consequence for that sin. It doesn't make an excuse for the sin. It doesn't rationalize the sin. It doesn't ignore the sin. It doesn't sweep the sin under the rug. It recognizes it, but doesn't hold it against them. Grace is not blind to guilt. It is a choice to not hold that guilt against them. This first part we see. The next part we see here is that grace is not fair. It's interesting that grace is not fair, and we use that language because unfair would really define a lot of Joseph's life. So much of Joseph's life could have been said as, that's unfair. Sold into slavery, not fair. Told lies about and thrown into prison, that's not fair. Forgotten about in prison, that's not fair. There's so many moments where Joseph was treated or was in a situation that was not fair at all, was not just. But now that he is second in command of Egypt, we almost feel like, Joseph, this is your chance to get justice, to do what's fair for you, to give your brothers what they deserve. And what do we see? Grace. And grace is not fair. Technically, they didn't even ask for grace at this point. They're still speechless and stunned. But he gives them grace. And that first part of verse 5, when Joseph says, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves. That's not fair. They should be upset with themselves. They should they should be remorseful. But Joseph is saying, I know this grace thing is not fair, but I'm still gonna give it to you. So grace is not blind to guilt. Grace is most certainly not fair. The other part of this picture of grace that we see is really fascinating because Joseph uses the same phrase four different times in this short interaction with his brothers. Let me read just his phrases. It was God who sent me here ahead of you. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he, God, is the one who made me an advisor. Do you see the theme there? Four times, almost word for word, Joseph highlights God is doing something, not you. So here's what I would point out about grace. That grace sees opportunities, not just the offense. So often when we are offended, when someone sins against us, when somebody hurts us, betrays us, talks about us, 
we hone in on the offense. You did this to me. That was wrong. And we hone in on that offense and we don't let it go. What Joseph does because of grace is he's able to have a bigger perspective and he recognizes that grace, because of God's grace, there's great opportunities. In other words, no matter what the brothers did or didn't do, God was still gonna use Joseph to save a lot of lives, no matter what. So when the brothers sold him into slavery, it's not like God's up in heaven like, oh no, like what am I gonna do? How, is my, how am I gonna make this work out? That wasn't part of the plan. Ah, oh, you really ruined this, guys. No, like God is sovereign over all. He is in control. And so he's working and moving no matter what. So here's what I would say to us in, in our sitting in this picture of grace. That so often we withhold grace because we think what the other person has done has ruined everything. You did that and now it's over. You did this and it's ruined. You did that and God can't fix it, is basically what we're saying. But grace sees an opportunity, not just the offense. With grace, we see how God truly can work and how truly he can move, regardless of what the offense is. That's what makes this picture of grace so beautiful. And he highlights that to his brothers. In other words, saying, nothing you could have done could have changed what God was going to do. We cannot surprise God. God's grace is bigger. And his grace sees opportunities, not just the offense. Verse nine, here's what Joseph says again to his brothers. He keeps talking. He says, now hurry back to my father and tell him. This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and everything you own. Then look at verse 11. Look at this. I will take care of you there. Blows my mind. I will take care of you there. For there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all your animals will starve. Now, if I'm Joseph, I might be able to forgive the past. I might be able to give grace for what has been done. But that's not what Joseph is doing here. This grace, this picture of grace moves into the present and into the future. It's not just about the past. So often that's how we'll view grace of just what has happened. But what we see here is what it looks like to live in grace, to walk in in grace, to walk with grace, not just in the past, but in the present and the future. For Joseph to say, not just you're forgiven, there's grace from, from what you've done, but he says, move here so you can be with me. And not just you, but your children and your grandchildren and all of your stuff, your entire household, all your animals, bring them here. Why? Verse 11 again, so that I can take care of you. That is a whole nother level of grace. That's not just about the past, but it's about a grace that continues to walk and live with us. That is a whole nother level. This picture of grace, it's a kind of even a familiar phrase, that grace knows no bounds. We're not bounded to grace just in our past of what we've done, but we live because of God's grace constantly within his grace. Today, you're walking in his grace and he will continue to take care of us forever. It's not just about our past, but it's our present and our future as well. 
Then he ends this section as he talks with his brothers, verse 12. Then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. You can tell that his brothers were still a little like, this cannot be happening. This isn't, something's wrong, like something's off here that cannot be Joseph. So he's trying to, he's trying to help them understand, no, this is really me, and I really mean all this. So verse 13, he says, go and tell my father my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen and then bring my father here quickly. Now this is the part that gets me. Verse 14, weeping with, what's it say? Weeping with joy. I don't know if I expected to see that word in this part of the story. Weeping with joy. He embraced Benjamin, one of his brothers, and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. That is a beautiful picture of grace. Notice what comes from that grace. Joy, not anger and bitterness and resentment, not frustrations or rage or malice, but joy. And not just joy, but then love. For every single one of the brothers that plotted to kill him and then sold him into slavery, he embraces and kisses each and every one of those brothers. And then notice the result. The result of grace, and after that, they began talking freely with him. Can you imagine that? The conversations that they had after grace was given versus the conversations they would have had before grace. The way they looked at each other after grace versus how they would have barely been able to look each other in the eye before grace. I mean, we can all agree, right, that Joseph's relationship with his brothers was not a good relationship. It was a strained relationship, a broken relationship, even a non-existent relationship. They thought he was dead. And grace reconciled and restored that relationship. Grace gives freedom. That's what we see as a result of this. And after that, they began talking freely. It was like things should have been. Things were restored and reconciled, and grace is what did that. Even though because of the, even with the past, because of the beautiful picture of grace, there's now freedom in this family. That when we were reading it in chapter 37 several weeks ago, you talk about the definition of a dysfunctional family. But God got into the mess. He jumped into the mess with this family, with Jacob and Joseph and these brothers that hated him. And God jumped into the mess and turned this mess into a beautiful picture of grace. Could you imagine the story that the brothers would have to tell now? Like they move their whole family and their whole household out to Egypt, just like Joseph had said. Can you imagine sitting around the campfire and the grandkids saying, hey, tell us a story when you sold our uncle into slavery again, dad. Oh, do we have to talk? Like, let's skip that part. But, but could you imagine the beautiful story of grace those brothers now had to tell? You're right, we did something horrible. But look at how our God worked through it. Look at the grace that we have all been given. The life that we have today is because of grace. The life we have today is because of grace. What a beautiful story to tell. Now, even though that's the story of the brothers, that is our story as well. Each and every one of us, 
We have a mess. And God has jumped into that mess with us and he has given us grace and we have a beautiful story of grace to tell. What I wanna do real quick is I wanna run through that story with you through what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. There's three parts to this section. I'm gonna do them kind of quickly. But this is your story and this is my story of a beautiful picture of grace. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in this unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Bottom line, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, just like the brothers. We all have a past. We all have a mess. We all have sin in our lives. So where do we begin this, with this story of grace? We begin by recognizing our need for grace. That every single one of us, just like scripture says, once you and I, we were all dead because of our disobedience to God and our many sins. Just like the brothers, we recognize our deep need for a savior and our deep need for grace. So we recognize it, but thank God the story doesn't end there. Verse four, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, look, here's the new life. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead and it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. We recognize that we can't do anything about our sin. We recognize we can't do anything to deserve or earn God's grace. He chooses to give it. So what do we do once we recognize our deep need for grace? We embrace God's grace because it is a gift that is given, not a reward that is earned. It's because he loves us so much. It's because of his mercy, because of what he did through his son Jesus on the cross that we have the option to receive grace. Then verse eight, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. But look at verse 10. But we are, for we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We recognize our deep need for grace. We embrace the gift of God's grace, and then we spend the rest of our lives displaying the grace that God has given us. Remember, grace is not just about our past. We live in grace, past, present, future. And so we get to be that masterpiece that God points to and says, you wanna see how great my love is? Look at Brian. Look at all of the mess and look at how I've used him. And you can put your name in there as well. Look at so-and-so, look at each and every one of you and the mess in your past and how God's grace has jumped in that mess with you, changed you from the inside out. And he's continued to walk with you each and every day, not just forgiving your past, but his grace lives with you today for all of eternity, where he takes care of us today as he prepares a home for us in heaven to be with him for all of eternity. That is a beautiful picture of grace. And we get to be his masterpiece. Like verse 10 says, that we're his masterpiece, that when people see us, they see God's work of art and grace. And it is, once again, 
a beautiful picture of grace. And each and every one of us is that masterpiece, is that picture of grace. We have three of these in our house. <clears throat> Actually, they're up in our closet, um, in our bedroom upstairs. One for each kid. And the reason we have three of these is because we eventually run out of room on our refrigerator. Because you know what a refrigerator is used for if you're a mom and dad, right? It's not for storing food in, in cold places. No, what, what a refrigerator is really used for is to hang up things like this, <laughs> isn't it? And your kid brings this home from school and, oh, it's great, I love it. What a work of art. And we put it on the refrigerator and then they come back a couple days later and they bring another one up. Oh, it's even better. We're gonna put that one right over here. And, and you start recognizing pretty soon, especially with us with three kids, like we run out of room really quick. But each and every time my kids bring something home, like this one, oh, it's just wonderful. We have to have a place to display it. We have to have a place to put this up so everybody can see it. Because if anybody comes over to the house, chances are good, they're gonna walk by the refrigerator at some point. And we wanna show off this amazing work of art. Now here's the reality though with all of these priceless pieces of art that we've kept over the years is when you look at this, you probably have this emotion. Aw. Like that's probably what you're thinking. Some of you are like, that's it? That's not impressive at all. I, my kid's so much better than your kid. <clears throat> Maybe. But here's what makes it different for me is my kid made this, not your kid. And what makes those pictures on your refrigerator so special is your kid made it, not my kid. It's personal, isn't it? If I could give you one thing to truly think through, it would, not, it would be to make grace personal, to display a personal grace. Not where you hear about Joseph's story and, oh, that's a great story of grace. Not where you hear about my story and like, ah, oh, good for him, that's a great story of grace. But where this becomes personal for you and it's your grace with your Savior because he loves you so much. It means a lot more when it's yours, when it's yours that's being displayed. And God loves to display his masterpieces. That's us. He loves to show off and display his works of grace in us. We all have a mess, and he has jumped into our mess with us cleaned us up and cleaned us off and has made us right in his sight because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And we get to spend the rest of our lives displaying that masterpiece of his grace in us. So if you're a believer here today, if you've received that grace, be encouraged. Continue to remember you're walking in grace. It's not just about your past. You get to walk in grace today and for all of eternity. If you're not a believer today, if you've not recognized or embraced that grace yet, that's where you start. The Christian life, let me give you a heads up. The Christian life is not about do good and be better. That is not the Christian life. That is a stressful, frustrated, depressing life of do good and be better. Because we're never going to hit that. The Christian life is embrace grace. That's the Christian life. And good will come out of that grace. I promise it will, not every time, but out of the grace that we've been given, yes, our lives change from the inside out. 
that relationship that we had with God is restored to where we are now friends with God. In this next moment, I want to give you a place to start. As a believer, as a non-believer, John Piper wrote this, and I think it's very appropriate for what I'd encourage you to do next. Let me read this. As you think about grace and your next steps in embracing God's grace and displaying his grace, consider Jesus. Know Jesus. Learn what kind of person it is you say you trust and love and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. Watch him. Listen to him. Stand in awe of him. Let him overwhelm you with the way he is. And I would add, let him overwhelm you with his grace. We pray for us. God, thank you so much for the grace that you give us. Not because we earn it, not because we could do anything to deserve it, but because you love us so much that you freely give it. I pray that as we reflect on the story of Joseph and even our own story, may we reflect on the beautiful picture of grace that it is, that we are your masterpiece. We get to display how you jumped into our mess with us and turned it into a beautiful picture. From mess to masterpiece, because of your grace, because of your amazing grace. So may we embrace it, may we thank you for it, and may we live each and every day displaying the grace that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.